chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. While you're looking for that and you found Matthew 9, I want you also to find Mark chapter 5. And if you'll put your finger there for just a minute or slip a marker there so you can get to it back quickly in just a few minutes. We're going to look at both of these passages of Scripture today. And uh, we have two stories here. that The same story is told in both passages. And one gives us a little bit of extra information. So that's why we're using both today. But we're returning to the ninth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And we're looking today at verses 18 through 26. Uh, It's been three weeks since we last looked at this passage, and I am very sorry that the way that things worked out, I had to leave you hanging for those three weeks before we could actually get back into this and look some more into this story and complete the section, and we still have another week to go on this. Uh, Next week uh, will be the third part of this message. But there are two intertwining stories that we find here, and I've titled the message, Life for Two Daughters. We have here the story of a 12-year-old daughter of the prominent leader of the synagogue. Uh, His daughter had died, and Jesus healed her, or Jesus raised her from physical death and gave her physical life. And then we also have a woman that had been sick for 12 years, and Jesus healed her, and he made her a daughter of his kingdom. And so we have one daughter that's given physical life, and then we have another daughter that's given salvation, which is spiritual life. And there are two very important lessons that are taught in these scriptures. The first one is that Jesus Christ has the power to raise dead bodies, and that's what he's going to do at the resurrection. When he comes back again, he will raise the dead bodies of Christians and those bodies will be raised and they'll be glorified and they'll be given a body that's made like the body of Jesus Christ. And that body is going to be fit for heaven, fit for eternal life. And then Jesus also raises dead sinners. He raises people into spiritual life. And the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, and we don't have spiritual life until we're touched by God, until we trust in Jesus Christ. He gives us spiritual life, so he's able to raise the spiritual dead into spiritual life. Now, we're looking here then at Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse number 18. If you'd stand with me again, please, for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 18. It says, while he spake these things unto them. Let me just remind you that this is a continuation of the section before. And Jesus had been speaking to disciples of John the Baptist who had been confused. And and they didn't really understand some things that Jesus was saying. So he was speaking to them. And while he's talking to them, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead. But come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad 
unto all that land. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for what we've read today. Open our hearts to your gospel. Speak to someone's heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Life for two daughters. What we have here is a story, two stories that are very important for the progressive approach that Matthew gives us in his proof that Jesus is the Messiah King. In order to show us the deity of Christ and the kingship of Christ, Matthew has recorded specific miracles. And we're looking at miracles that Jesus did in chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew. And these are miracles that relate to the coming kingdom of Christ. Christ is going to come again. And he is going to establish a kingdom upon this earth. And in that kingdom there is going to be no sickness. There will be an abundance of food. There will be great prosperity. Sin will be restrained. Death will be conquered. And so thus we've seen in these chapters miracles of healing. There's a miracle of power over nature. A miracle of casting out thousands of demons. And now we come to a miracle of raising someone from the dead. And this is the progressive revelation that Matthew gives us of the kingship of Christ. Now we're talking here about death. And then we began talking about spiritual death those three weeks ago, or rather physical death. Today we're going to talk more about the other side of it, which is spiritual death. But I want every one of you to understand that death is the great enemy of every one of us here. And if Jesus decides to tarry his coming, everyone in this room is going to die. And I know that we don't like to think about that. We like to put it out of our minds. We don't want to consider it. But the inevitable is coming. Jesus is going to come back. And and if he doesn't come back in our lifetime, every one of us is going to die. And the Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die. Now in the first part of the narrative, we have what we would call an untimely death. A death that you don't expect because here is the death of a young girl, a girl who is only 12 years old. And I'm sure that you can imagine, if you're a parent today, what a terrible prospect that would be to face. None of us wants to outlive our children. And a parent who truly loves a child would do anything to see that child live. And I'm sure that there's not a parent here today that if this happened to you, that you would give everything that you could possibly do. You would do everything within your power to see a sick child live. You don't want your child to die. And this is what we see in the first part of the story. This is what this man faced. His child was dying, and he went to seek Jesus for help. Now let me just remind you for a few minutes about what we talked about three weeks ago. In the first part of the message, we talked about this affectionate father. Now according to Mark, the man's name was Jairus, and he was a ruler in the synagogue. Mark writes this in Mark chapter 5, verse number 22, And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, that is, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and that she shall live. Now, the man was a chief elder in the synagogue, and we suppose by the position that he had, that formerly he had great opposition to Jesus. It's very likely that he was in league with the scribes and the Pharisees, and that he had done all that he could to discourage Jesus' ministry and to disparage that ministry. 
And if he hadn't been opposed to Jesus, then there was no way that he would have been able to keep this position that he had as an elder in the synagogue. But this man was also very much aware of all the miracles that Jesus had done. He had seen that there were thousands of people that came to Jesus for healing. He heard about the devils that had been cast out, and he was certainly aware of something that we read here in the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, and that was the healing of that paralytic man. And there was a great commotion that was caused by that. Do you remember how that Jesus was speaking and the house was full? They couldn't get this man in to see Jesus. And so his friends took him up on the roof and they tore off the roof and they let this man down into the presence of Jesus right at his feet and Jesus healed him and forgave him of his sins. Now that occurred just a very short distance away from the synagogue. You can go to Capernaum today where this story takes place and you'll find that Peter's house where the healing took place is only just maybe five minutes, two, three, four, five minute walk from the synagogue over there to where Peter lived. And so certainly this man was aware of what had happened with that healing. Now he finds himself in great need of Jesus' help. He had been in opposition. His daughter is dying. There is no cure. And he is so certain of her death that he knows that she is most likely to die before he can ever get Jesus back to his house in order to help her. And so this man was in such desperation that he forgot his prejudice, his prejudice against Jesus and what he was doing. He forgot about his position in the synagogue. He forgets about the pride that he has in his own religion. And he goes and he seeks the only one who can help him. The religion of the scribes and the Pharisees had absolutely nothing in it that could deal with this man's problem. There were no resources in that religion to deal with this man's problem. And if we didn't know the compassionate character of Jesus, we would expect that Jesus would spurn the man. Why didn't Jesus just turn away from him? There's no reason why he should help him. A day or two before this, probably. A day or two before it, probably. He would have done everything that he could to throw Jesus out of Capernaum. If he could just get rid of him and get rid of the ministry, he was like all the rest of them. So why would Jesus even help this man? But that's not the character of Jesus. He is compassionate on people. He's even compassionate about his enemies. He told us to do the same in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So Jesus is an example of his own teaching. He will not spurn his enemies even when they come to him for help. Uh, he, He is able to help people in every problem that they have. He's not going to turn away even from an enemy. And we're so thankful that he is that way because the Bible teaches that every one of us is the enemy of God. Maybe you don't realize that. If you don't know Christ today, every one of us, before we came to him in salvation, we were the enemies of God. And the Bible says that while we were in that condition, God sent his son into the world to die for our sins. Even when we were estranged from God, he loved us and he gave his life for us. So as we read in our text here, Jesus received the man, he listened to the problem that he had, and he was willing to go where this man was or where his daughter was to help her. In verse number 19 it says, Jesus arose and followed him. 
Now that brings us to the second part of the story. Now, I said there are two intertwining stories, and we have one story here that's uh, interrupting the first part of this. We're interrupted by a second story. Jesus arose to follow the man, but while he was on the way to go to the house, he meets another person, and this is the afflicted woman. Now, here I want you to make sure you're over in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, because Mark gives us a little bit more detail about this woman, and it helps us to understand a little bit more about what happened. Now, if you'll look in verse number 24 in Mark, chapter 5, it says, And Jesus went with him. That is, Jesus is going with Jairus. And it says, Much people followed him and thronged him. So there's a crowd that's following. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years... And had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, that is, in the crowd that's following him, and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. Now here then is this afflicted woman. She also had a need, and there's only one person who can help her. And who is that? Well, it's Jesus. And so she did her best to get to Jesus. Galilee was filled with all of these sick and dying people. There was nobody that could help them. At least previous to Jesus arriving on the scene, the sicknesses, many of the sicknesses were a sentence of death. And there's only one person who's able to deliver from death, and that's Jesus. I want to notice some things about her. We'll look first of all at the duration of her affliction. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time in giving some, several descriptions. We're going to go through it rather quickly until we get to the response of Jesus to this affliction. But first of all, there is the duration of the affliction. And verse number 25 says that this woman had her problem for a period of 12 years. Now, I think immediately there you would notice something. 12 years, that seems to be significant in this story because in the first part, you have a man whose daughter, who's 12 years old... And she is about to die. Now, there is a young lady that's just like your children, just like a daughter of yours. And for 12 years, that daughter had brought sunshine into her father's life. 12 years he had to spend with his daughter. What a glorious time that must have been. You know how it is as a parent having a child. 12 years that he had a good time with his daughter. But we see the opposite here because here is a woman that for 12 years had had this issue of blood, this sickness. And so her 12 years, those past 12 years of that girl's life, this woman had spent in misery. Misery over her condition. And how much does the duration of an illness add to the misery? When you have to go through something day after day and week after week and year after year and there is no relief for it. How much does that add to the misery? I know some of you, you live in constant pain. 
And I know that there are times that you just want to give up. Well, why can't it just be over with? Get it all done with. Now, this woman had done all that she could to deal with this illness, and nothing helped her. And her persistence in her attempts are are found in a comment that we see in verse number 26. It says that she had been to many doctors. Verse 26 says, And had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. So she had been to all of these doctors. So the next thing that we look here is at the doctor's attempts. Now, you have to like the way that Mark puts this because he seems a little bit skeptical about the doctors. He said she had suffered many things of many physicians. Have you ever felt that way sometimes? I mean, my, my wife has been ill for quite some time, and it took over two years for them to finally, for the doctors to finally diagnose what was wrong with her. She had been to many doctors, and she was tired of going to doctors. I mean, she had been poked and tested and poked and tested, and it finally came to the place she didn't want to be poked and tested anymore. And so she didn't want to go to the doctors anymore. Well, the doctors in the days that we're talking about here in the time of Jesus were far worse than we could ever imagine. I mean, these are more like voodoo doctors. If you look back into the history of this, you'll, you'll see there are some very, very weird types of attempts to cure people of their diseases. And often, the cure for the disease was worse than the disease itself. And that's the way it was a lot of time with primitive medicine. In the early days of this country, it was that way. Maybe you don't know the history of this, but George Washington died from what many people believe was simply an acute case of laryngitis. And do you know what they tried to do in order to cure George Washington of his laryngitis? Over a period of 16 hours, they drained five pints of blood from him. That's what they did to try to cure his laryngitis. Now, it was far worse in the Bible times. There's no wonder that when Jesus came along and people saw what he could do, they were so happy. This woman had been to many doctors, and they had bled her dry, all right, because what they had done, they'd taken every penny that she had, and they had done nothing for her. She'd only gotten worse. So Mark has this kind of a little caustic remark about it. She'd suffered many things of many physicians. Now, an interesting thing about this, if you go over to the book of Luke and you read the same thing there, he states it a little bit differently. Luke was a physician. And Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the gospel, or rather the the book of Acts. And Luke just states it a little bit differently. He just says, she couldn't be healed. Mark says, she suffered from the physicians. Luke says, she just couldn't be healed. So I don't know, maybe Luke was defending his profession a little bit there. But the information that we're given here is to show us the impossibility of the condition. There's no doctor who can help her. There is no cure for her. She had attempted for 12 years to be cured, 12 years of trying, and she was only getting worse. Now, thirdly, we would notice about her the disgrace of her ailment. That's also a problem for her. It was an issue of blood. Now, we don't know exactly what this is, But by looking at the Old Testament, we know that this is most likely a female problem. An issue of blood is a flow of blood that comes from the reproductive organs. Now, if if a woman had this, and we can consider in this, and I don't want to get too graphic for you today, but you consider the normal flow of of a woman's monthly cycle, 
that during that time she was considered to be unclean. According to the law, she had to be separated from everyone else for that period of time that she had this flow of blood. Now, I want you to listen to what the old ceremonial law says concerning an issue of blood and what happens if that continues beyond the normal time. In Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, it says, And if a woman have an issue of her blood many days out of the time of her separation. In other words, if this goes beyond the time of the normal time that she would be separated from everyone else until this is over, it says, or if it run beyond the time of her separation, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation, and she shall be unclean. Every bed whereon she lieth all the days of her issue shall be unto her as the bed of her separation. And whatsoever she sitteth upon shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her separation. And whosoever toucheth those things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until even. Now let me put that to you very simply. This woman was ceremonially unclean. The law says that in that monthly cycle, she has to be separated from the other people. She can't go out. She can't mix and mingle. She can't be with anyone. Now, the problem here is that the issue of blood was not over in in the normal time, but it went on for 12 years. She still has this problem that's going on, the issue of blood. And so for all of that time, according to the law that was given by Moses, this woman is unclean. And so that means that nobody can touch her. Anybody who does touch her becomes unclean. She can't go out into public. She's not able to mix and mingle with people. If her husband or her children touch her, if they sit anywhere that she has sat, if they go to the bed where she is lying, if they get on that, they are considered to be unclean. And they have to go through a purifying process. Now, this woman had lived that way for 12 years. And so that meant that she was an outcast for 12 years. And for all of that time, you have to know that nobody wanted to have anything to do with her. She was not going to get better. As far as they were concerned, there is no way she's going to get better. And so people wouldn't have anything to do with her. So really, really, she really wasn't any better than a leper. I mean, she was basically in the same position that a leper would be in. Because if you remember when we talked about the leper in the beginning of chapter 8, he was unclean, and so he was an outcast. He had to be put outside of the city. He couldn't go in. There's no social interaction. You can't go to the synagogue. You're barred from all the religious activities. But at least a leper could do this. A leper could go live in a colony. He can go live in a colony among other lepers, and maybe that's some comfort. At least he's got somebody to hang around with. But you know, they didn't have something, something, they didn't have an issue of blood colony. I mean, you just didn't go live in the issue of blood colony and have other people to hang around with. So this means that this one was all by herself. This woman is a social outcast. And this is why being a loner and an outcast. She's down at the end of a rope. She has nothing else that she can do. And this is why she has a plan to get to Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something about that plan. Fourthly is the disguise of her approach. 
Now, this was just a typical day for Jesus. Everywhere he went, there were crowds that were following him. Verse 24 says there in Mark 5 that much people followed him and thronged him. So there was pushing, there was shoving. Jesus was trying to make his way through the crowd. He's on his way to Jairus' house. He's struggling to get through all the crowd, trying to cut through, get his way there. And this woman, who should not have been out and about, who shouldn't have been in public because of this disease, this unclean woman knew that Jesus was passing that way, and so she tried to get to Jesus. Now you think about how many people that she must have touched while she was trying to do that. The crowd was pressing. She's trying to get to him. Many people were touching her. She's touching many people. She knew that she wasn't supposed to be there. So what she's not going to do, she's not going to come up and confront Jesus face to face. She's not even supposed to be in the crowd at all. But she had this much faith that if she could just get near enough to him that she could touch him, just if she could get close enough to just get a sneaky touch in there, in stealth mode, just get it quick, and then get out of there as fast as she would she could, no one would be the wiser and she would be okay. But not so fast because out of that crowd of hundreds of people, she touched Jesus and he knew that he had been touched. Her faith, it says, caused virtue to go out of him. Now, I don't know how you explain that. This woman was was, was healed, and she never confronted Jesus. She never spoke to him. He never said anything to her previous to this. She just reached out and touched him, and she was healed. How does something like that happen? Well, the only explanation that I can come up with is that we're talking here about a sovereign God. We're talking about God who knows all of these things. He knows what's happening. And so he healed the woman. This is how the sovereign God acts. Jesus was always going about doing the Father's will. He was always walking in perfect accord with the Father. And so when Jesus, the man, was touched, the sovereign Father took care of this. He healed the woman. And when that happened, Jesus being God, he knew that the power of God had gone out of him and into her. He knew he'd been touched. He felt that power go out of him. So he turns to his disciples and he said, Who touched me? And the disciples said, oh, you're kidding, aren't you? You're kidding, right? I mean, who touched you? Do you see the hundreds of people here? Do you see the crowd that's here? What do you mean, who touched you? Well, Jesus wasn't interested in the crowd at that moment. There was only one person that he was interested in. He was interested in that woman. She had touched him, and he felt the power of God went out of him and went into her. Well, at that point, the woman knew that she'd been discovered. And knowing the power of Jesus, she knew that he could isolate her from everyone in that crowd just like that. In five seconds of time, he would know who did this. So she was going to have to face the music. She'd done the wrong thing. She's out in public. She's not supposed to be there. She's going to have to face up to it. So the Bible says that she came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him and told him all the truth. And now I want you to see the response of Jesus, the display of affection, the affection of Jesus. Now, verse 34 in Mark 5 says, And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. 
Now, do you see this? Here, here I hope you understand that this is why I called this message Life for Two Daughters, because now we find the second daughter of the story. She had just become a daughter of Jesus, because now she has been born again into the kingdom of God. And you say, now wait just a minute. Uh, The scripture says that she was healed, but it doesn't say anything at all here about her salvation. Jesus said to her, thy faith hath made thee whole. So did she get saved, or was she only healed? And that's a very good question, because Jesus healed many people without any faith. Did you know that? Without any faith, Jesus healed people. You don't don't think that the thousands of people that Jesus healed, that every single one of them became a Christian, and they began to follow him. We know that they didn't. What happened when he went into Jerusalem after all the miracles that he did? They were praising him one moment and condemning him the next. The crowd turned against him. Now, there were many, many people that were healed. Not all of them were saved. Some of them were. In chapter 8, there was the healing of the centurion's servant, and there was no part or no faith on the part of that man's servant. Jesus healed that boy at a distance, and he did it because of the centurion's faith. And we don't have any mention at all of the boy's faith. We don't have any idea if that boy ever became a Christian. It doesn't tell us that. But we do know what happened here. And how do we know that? Well, let's look again at what Jesus said. It's the same in both accounts, both in Matthew and Mark. Jesus said, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Now, do you notice something here? In verse number 29, she had already touched Jesus and she was already healed. But in straightway, verse 29 says, in straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. She touched him, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. So the healing's already taken place. And now we come down to verse number 34. This is five verses later. And Jesus says to her, thy faith hath made thee whole. Now is he just reiterating what she already knew? She could have scooted out of that crowd in a hurry. And she would have had her healing intact. She was healed of the disease. So what's the difference in what happens in verse number 29 and what happens in verse number 34? Well, the secret of discovering that difference between healing and her salvation is the word that Jesus used. And the word is different from healing. The word in verse number 29 is a different word, and it means exactly what you think it means. It means to be cured. It means to be healed from the disease. But the verse, or the word in verse number 34, it's a different word. And this is a word that's used throughout the New Testament for salvation. The word is whole. Jesus said, thy faith has made thee whole. And the word there is sozo. And it's a word that means to save. It's a word that means deliverance. And if you want to put it another way, it's a word that means safe. And that's what salvation is. Salvation is when we become safe. Well, safe from what? Safe from God's wrath? Safe from eternal torment? Safe from destruction? And so Jesus didn't only heal her, he made her safe. And do you know that's a wonderful truth that we have in the salvation of Christ? You are safe. You're never going to lose your salvation. There's no safety if a preacher says to you, well, you can be saved today, but tomorrow you'd better watch out because you could do something to lose your salvation. And if you don't keep up the standard, and if you don't keep doing this and keep doing that, then you can lose your salvation. That's not being saved. It's being safe. 
If you can be saved today and lost tomorrow, you're not safe. That's not the kind of salvation that Jesus gives. The salvation that he gives protects you from all harm. And you are delivered from hell at the very moment that you put your faith in Christ. If that faith is a genuine faith, and if you truly do believe that Jesus died to save you from your sins, and you put your faith in him, you are safe. And you're always and forever safe. Now we have this great display of affection from Jesus. But you know what he could have done? He could have responded with the harshness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they never would have been this compassionate. They would have seen this woman in the crowd, and they would have said, she's here against the Mosaic law. And their first thought would have been, we need to judge her, and we need to put her right back into her place. And they would have said, this woman has sinned a grievous sin. She's unclean, and she's in public. She is defiled. And she has also risked our cleanliness because she may have touched us as she went through the crowd. And do you know that's what smug self-righteousness always does? It always condemns. It always finds faults with others. It always slams people with the rigidity of the law. Keep the rules. Do this. Do that. If you're not just like us, then we don't want anything to do with you. You're going to make us unclean because of the kind of person that you are. But Jesus never did that. She came to him in fear and trembling, and she's wondering all the time, is he going to do to me what the scribes and Pharisees would do? Is he going to do to me what that religion requires them to do? Now, he knew, or she knew, that he had the power to heal her, and so if he has the power to heal her, he also has the power to take that healing away. And think about it for just a moment. Jesus was as sworn to uphold the law of God as anyone, even more so. He's the perfect son of God. He's not going to circumvent the law. The scripture says he came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to destroy it. But Jesus realized what the scribes and the Pharisees did not realize. Keeping of commandments will never save anybody. The commandments were never given to save us. This woman reached out beyond the law to the only hope that she had. Now, just like Jairus, she found out that there's no hope in my religious system. There's nothing there that can deal with death, either physical or spiritual. In fact, the law itself can do nothing at all but further condemn us. Now, you have people all the time that are talking about, well, how are you going to get saved? Well, you've got to keep this sacrament, and you've got to do this thing, and you've got to do that thing, and you've got to go to the priest, and you've got to get absolved, and you've got to go through all these processes, then maybe, just maybe, maybe you'll get into heaven. But the law doesn't have any ability at all to save us. The law points out our sinfulness. It doesn't change us at all. So what did she do and what did Jesus do? Well, she came to Jesus for help, and Jesus saved her because that was his purpose. Now, she was a sinner. Now, yes, she is. She's out there beyond the bounds of the Mosaic law, and Jesus was there to save her precisely because of this, because she is a sinner. And haven't we learned that in the previous section already, that the Bible says that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance? He didn't come to call people that already think they're good enough. If you're already good enough to go to heaven, you don't need to talk to Jesus about anything. He came to call sinners to repentance. 
And so we have two examples of two kinds of people that need desperate help. And both of them have to come in their desperation or neither one of them is going to receive Jesus' help. Jesus was impartial in both cases. He doesn't turn Jairus away, not, not because of his previous opposition. He saw the need in the man, and so he followed Jairus to his house. And on his way, he's there in the thick of the crowd. Another person comes in, one who is on the opposite extreme of the law from Jairus. Jairus previously was a self-righteous upholder of the law. He never would have come to Jesus for help, but he was so desperate he had no place else to go, so he did. But this woman is not like Jairus. She is bound by the strictness of the law because of the issue of blood. And beyond that, she is a woman. She's a woman as well. Now, the Jews thank God for three things. They thank God for number one. Number one, they thank God that they weren't born a dog. Number two, they thank God that they weren't born a Gentile. And number three, they thank God that they weren't born a woman. All three of those were the same in the Jews' eyes. This is the way that they thought. All in the same category. But to Jesus, she's a daughter. And he loved her even more than Jairus loved his own daughter. So Jesus was impartial and he saved her. You see, he never turns anyone away who comes to him for help. We've already seen that. He didn't turn a leper away when, when uh, a man, this man was, was an outcast because of his disease. And he didn't turn the centurion away because there was a man who was an outcast because of his race. And he didn't turn Matthew away, a man who was an outcast because of his occupation. And he didn't turn this woman away because she was an outcast according to her gender. You see, this is the character of the Savior. He came to save people. And it doesn't make any difference who you are. It doesn't make a difference what you've done or where you've been. He came to save you. And so here we find another great characteristic of the kingdom of Christ. And that's what Matthew is about, the kingdom of Christ. There is salvation in his kingdom. There is the ability for him to raise spiritually dead sinners into spiritual life. As I mentioned earlier in the beginning of the message, you were born spiritually dead. All of us are that way. We are born that way. And all of our physical lives, we stay that way. We stay that way until something comes along to give us spiritual life. Now, one of these days, your physical life is going to run out. You're going to give that up. And if you don't have spiritual life, you're going to spend all of eternity spiritually dead, and that means to be apart from God forever. Well, something came along, or rather somebody came along, and when he came, he didn't stumble upon this. He didn't come into the world and say, well, you know something, I might as well help a few people while I'm here. Might as well heal some people, and might as well save some sinners while I'm here. No, you have to get the picture that this was Christ's purpose from the very beginning. His purpose was to come into the world to die for spiritually dead people. He came to make spiritually dead people alive. And he came to give his own life that he might do that. God so loved the world that he was willing to give his own son as a sacrifice for sin. And this woman found out about it. Now, you see what could have happened. Jesus could have felt that healing virtue gone out of him, and he never would have said a word. 
I mean, there are hundreds of people that are there. There are all kinds of people that are touching him. And I highly suspect that many of the people were also sick. But this woman touched him, secretly touching him, not trying to disturb him at all, not trying to call any attention to herself. But when she touched him, he knew it. And in that split second, that whole scene goes freeze frame. Can you imagine that? The whole scene now is freeze frame, and there is nobody in that crowd but this woman. And all of his attention goes directly to her. And you know why? Because he was going to save her. And may I submit to you that the same attention is being paid to you today? There is no one in this room but you. The message that I'm preaching this morning is going right to you. You know, there are people that go out. This, this happens often on, after sermons. People say, well, I felt like you were preaching directly to me today. I'm not preaching directly to anybody. I'm preaching to the crowd, just like the disciples were going through the crowd. And they said to Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? Look at all these people. Who touched you? What do you mean by that? And folks, if you feel that the message is directly to you today, it's not because of me. If you feel that the message is speaking directly to you today, it's because you have been touched by Jesus. It's because the Holy Spirit has begun to work in your heart. So right now, there's nobody here but you and Jesus. You forget about the person sitting next to you unless you're praying for them. Forget about them. All of Jesus' attention is focused upon you. Now, at the end of the service, I I often say, often tell the congregation, if you feel that you need some more information about what I've just said, then you're welcome to come. If the sermon has touched you in some way, there are people that are standing by that can help you. If you want, you can, we're going to sing in a few minutes. If you want, you could come to the front. That's fine. If you want, you can go to the back. There's some people back there that stand by that will help you. You can wait till after the singing is over and after the service and you can talk to someone. But you know, there are some people who will say, but I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to do that. And let me just say to you that you're not as desperate as Jairus yet. And you're not as desperate as that woman yet. And if you don't come and ask Jesus for help, you won't go away saved today. When you get desperate enough for your sins to be forgiven, and you are desperate enough that you don't want to spend eternity in hell, you will come and ask Jesus to save you. And all I'm telling you right now is if you need help with that, if you need someone to guide you through it, then help is available for you. And then if you have done that, you ought to make it known. You don't hide it from people. You let others know about it. I can't imagine for a moment that this woman went away healed from her disease and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ on our way to heaven, and she never told anybody about it. I can't even imagine that. Jesus raises spiritually dead people into spiritual life. And when we come back next time, we're going to talk about the power of Jesus to raise the physically dead into life. And I want to tell you this morning that you can have both of those if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior.
If you will put your faith in him and sincerely believe that he died to save you from your sins, you can have both of those. You can have spiritual life, and one of these days, your body will be raised to physical life again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word today, for the great message that we find in these scriptures, even though the attempt has been feeble to try to explain it. We know, Lord, that your Holy Spirit uses the word to touch people's hearts. I pray, Lord, that there would be someone here today who would recognize that the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to them. They feel that the Holy Spirit has touched them with what's been said today, and that touching of the Holy Spirit upon a person's heart is when he begins to call that person to salvation. Lord, help them to realize it, and now, even at this very moment, surrender everything to him. Give it all up, everything that we are, all of our past, all that has hindered us before. Get rid of the pride, the prejudice, everything else like Jairus had, and come to Jesus because he's the only one who can help. Lord, speak to someone's heart today, and we give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.